Hey, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here as well, and I should welcome the online viewers. Um, there are a few advantages and disadvantages of staying home. Uh, what you're missing out on is the free coffee. However, um, they have pajamas on right now, you know, that's, <laughs> that's an advantage. But I am, I'm really happy to be here. I gotta tell you where I was and what I was doing when I got Sean's message about coming to preach for him today. I was actually suffering for the Lord in a foreign country. Um, I was sitting in the shade of a palm tree with a little tropical drink with an umbrella in it and a beautiful beach. It's a true story, not the umbrella. Um, but I was there with friends. We have a, a group of, of old friends, and we, we get together every year. It's this annual thing we do at a, at a friend's house in southern Mexico. And we, uh, over the years, have forged very significant friendships. It's a great, great thing that we do. And uh, we don't share everything in common. One thing we don't all have in common is we don't share our faith. We, um, a couple of us are followers of Jesus Christ, and some of the guys have not yet made that commitment. And that makes for some very deep discussions. Now, in this, uh, the same day and within an hour of the time that I got Sean's call, one of the guys, a sincere seeker, looked to another and said, do you ever wonder what we're doing here? And the other one could have answered, well, isn't that pretty obvious? I mean, we're, we're surfing, we're cooking, we're eating, we're hanging out and talking. What do you mean? But he knew what his friend meant. They were talking about ultimate realities, essentially the meaning of life. And it's a very disconcerting feeling when you don't know your purpose on the planet, when you're confused about what to do next. I think the original disciples actually felt that way. They um, had gathered, the resurrected Christ ascended, they just stared off into space, probably thinking, okay, he came down, he did something great, but he's left and he's left us here, now what? Apparently they were so confused that God sent a messenger, an angel, and what that angel said is recorded in the, the book of Acts, chapter one, verse 11. He said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? You know, as if to say, what's, what's, what's next for you? You should know that already. Disciples have been commissioned to make disciples. That had already happened. But in our day, I think a lot of Christians are still just staring off into space, unsure what we should be doing. But again, God has spoken. You know, Jesus said, recording the book of John, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So ask yourself, why was Christ sent? What did he say about that? What he said about that was, I've come to seek and save the lost. So we, we should know what we're doing here, but still there's some confusion. Now we're going to be taking a look at an extended passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, and I've got to warn you, it's a very sad story. The Bible accurately records some tragic events of history. And fortunately, the New Testament teaches us how to view these very difficult circumstances the Israelites went through. There's a, a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 that tells us how, from the New Testament, how to see the Old Testament. It says this, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. 
So we'll be moving into 2 Kings in a moment, and we are going there with this mindset of learning from some difficult circumstances that people experienced so long ago. Now, it's kind of interesting. I'm reading the Bible from this monitor. When I came and watched Sean speak, I saw that he uses the Bible in front of him. I was used to using my Bible in my hand. But the weirdest thing happened over the years. The print in my Bible just got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and, and the Bible here is like four inches high. It's huge. This is nice. I don't need my glasses. I thought for a long time the glasses were things that old people wore. And uh, so I'd, you know, try to, I, I'm glad I have a 36 inseam, you know, because I could hold my Bible, <laughs> trying to get it right. I actually, one time while teaching, I had to stop and I asked the congregation, does anybody have, anybody have reading glasses that are about 1.75 or so? And somebody brought me glasses so I could read my Bible. But anyway, I'm looking at a giant Bible now. So we're going into 2 Kings, and I'm just going to give you a couple verses in chapter 6 that set the stage for this account. You know that it's important to read things within context, and yet in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, we see a phrase that tells us that we've, we're going into something new now. It says, some time later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. So something is happening, and now there's a new episode, and it starts off with this knowledge that we have that an army has come and besieged a city. Now, when you hear the word Samaria, you might think of the area, the region of Samaria between Judea and Galilee, and Jesus walked through Samaria and stopped at the well at Sychar and so on. This is not talking about the region. It's talking about the city of Samaria, which at that time was the capital of the northern tribes, capital of Israel, as Jerusalem was the capital of Judea. So here's a city that's being besieged by the Arameans. They're also called the Syrians. So in those days, when an army would besiege a city, the way they'd attack a city is they'd just kind of camp outside of it so no one could go out of the city to their flocks and fields and bring food in. You know, it was like an embargo where the grocery trucks couldn't come in and so on. And um, it was basically a blockade. And over time things got really bad in those situations. In this case, things were absolutely terrible. There was no food. So weeks go by and months go by and starvation is a reality. And because of the scarcity of food, there was exorbitant uh, inflation of prices. To what extent? Verse 25 tells us there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, there's a little weird thing with translation. The Hebrew for seed pods can also mean dove's dung, which sounds even less appetizing than seed pods or a donkey's head. But the point of these things is that we've got these exorbitant prices for things that you wouldn't really want to eat anyway. You know, um, the donkey's head, I mean, we're talking about the least edible part of the least appetizing animal. So things are horrible, absolutely incredible. These, these people are experiencing an absolutely hopeless situation, and they are helpless. Now, the next few verses document just how bad it got, and I, I won't even go into them, but it gives an incident of cannibalism. And you know that in any century in any continent in any culture if things get that bad it, they couldn't get worse horrible horrible human agony 
And if things were difficult or even impossible for the average citizen of Samaria, how much worse for those who only got leftovers, right? So now I'm going to jump into chapter 7 of 2 Kings, and we're going to meet four lepers in verse 3. A leper was not going to hold down a job. A leopard would only get food or money if, if, if someone else had an extra. Well, there's no extra, so they're in a worse situation than anybody. Chapter 7, verse 3. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why do we stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we'll die. So it's actually pretty good thinking. They're considering their alternatives. If they stay right where they are, there's no hope. If they break with social norms and barge into the middle of the city where they don't belong as lepers and and beg for food, there's no food there. They're going to die there. So it's die or die or walk into the camp of the enemy and probably die. They'll probably get skewered with a sword, but that's a painless death in comparison to the long-term agony of starvation. And there's that possibility they'll be taken prisoner. And if they're taken prisoner, wow, you got to feed prisoners, right? So you can see they're thinking, they've got a plan, now they're going to execute the plan. Verse 5 tells us, at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. Okay, why? What's the explanation? Verse 6 tells us, For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Now, the only way that we can understand this explanation is to, to, to realize that something supernatural happened. Okay, This is an act of God. God miraculously intervened. And these lepers, well, they just stumbled upon it. It was nothing in them that made them more worthy. They just happened upon this incredibly good news that God had intervened. So it says that the, the enemy had abandoned their tents and left everything exactly as it was. So as, as the man with leprosy, verse 8 tells us, reached the edge of the camp, they entered one of the tents and they ate and drank and carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid it also, hid them also. So picture this, they, they've been starving. They are acquainted with the cries of the people in Samaria night after night, agony. They've had that gnawing feeling inside of them. They have nothing in their stomachs. They walk in the first tent and here is a make-your-own-pita bar, okay? Here you, you choose your whole wheat, you choose your, your protein, you got your grilled lamb, your herb chicken, your falafel balls in case you want to go uh, vegan with this thing. You got your sliced tomatoes and cucumbers and shredded lettuce. You got tahini, tabbouleh, uh, you know, everything you could possibly think of. You got feta cheese and kalamata olives on top of it. Are you getting hungry yet? 
So they're just gorging themselves. It's like they, if they sit back, they have to loosen their tunics or togas or whatever they're wearing. And you can just picture them having to stuff their faces and thinking through what it had been like. One of them probably said, do you remember where we were at exactly this time yesterday? How hopeless we felt. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. Do you remember what it was like last week? This has been going on for months. And gradually, when they were fully satisfied, their attention shifted from themselves onto what they essentially realized was a moral responsibility to communicate that good news. Verse 9 is really the key of the whole text. Look with me at verse 9. Then they said to each other, we are not doing right. Stop with me right there for a second. You know, a great turning point in all of our lives is when we say we're not doing right. Because there are various ways in our lives we aren't doing right. And we never change unless we're willing to sit with trusted friends and say, guess what, guys? I've come to this realization, I haven't been doing right. I'm under obligation to be a better man than I am. So they've said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Think again, we're not doing right. We are keeping this to ourselves. Now, I already mentioned that the New Testament tells us to learn lessons from these very difficult circumstances we read of in the Old Testament. And I'm certain that you are already grasping some of the points of comparison here using this historical event as an analogy. Like the people who lived in Samaria, we are helpless and hopeless unless God intervenes. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And also, like these lepers, we who have stumbled upon what God has done such that we don't have to die, but we can live, we who have stumbled upon that good news have a moral responsibility to communicate it to others. But here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to camp out with me for a while on this idea of them saying, we're not doing right, we need to, we have, we, this is good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. Now think through, what if they had kept it to themselves? What would motivate someone to keep it to themselves? What hinders us from going back into the place of need and communicating the truth that God has intervened? Why might we keep it to ourselves, this good news? Several things came to mind. The first is self-consciousness. I think the first reason why we keep the good news to ourselves is self-consciousness. We keep the good news when we're afraid, thinking that people will reject us. Maybe we're embarrassed about being Christians. It's not regarded highly in our culture these days. Maybe we are hindered by feelings of inadequacy. We think, I don't want to be asked a question as I'm sharing my faith that I don't know how to answer. So we're thinking about ourselves and we're worried and so on. But you know, we, we shouldn't be, and here's why. Consider the risk factor, okay? Is it all that big? After all, you have so little to lose and your friends have so much to gain 
when we open our mouths for Christ. Let's not let self-consciousness, let's not let fear hinder us from sharing good news. What's another reason why we might keep it to ourselves? I've got a word even worse than self-consciousness. It's, 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 it's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, well, none of us want to be regarded as self-righteous. Because I mean, if you think about it, if any classification of people would not be self-righteous, it's a Christian. Because by, a def- by definition, a Christian has stopped relying upon our self-made, self-manufactured goodness. And we have cast ourselves entirely upon the righteousness of Christ. You know, that, that's really part of what it means to become a Christian. So we should not be self-righteous, but some of us are. I mean, sometimes we, we don't share the truth. We don't we don't keep we don't we we keep the good news to ourselves because we're essentially uh, we're essentially arrogant. We think people are below us, but the truth is that no one is below us, and we're not above anybody. We're all in exactly the same boat, helpless and hopeless, except that God has done something miraculously, which He has done, and we're just like those lepers because it wasn't that we were so great that we found out what gives life. We just stumbled upon got that incredibly good news. So the whole idea of being self-righteous or, or arrogant, just, it, it, it shouldn't fit with being a Christian. But there's another factor that can hinder us, and that's self, self-absorption. That's one of those many self-hyphenated words that you hear these days. All about yourself, it's all about me. Boy, if the lepers had continued to only think about meeting their own needs, if they continued to think it was all about them, they never would have recognized their responsibility to communicate this good news. But, but we, can, we can sometimes keep the good news to ourselves when we're apathetic, when we think that people don't really matter. Of course, the problem with a follower of Jesus Christ being apathetic, meaning not caring, not doing anything, is that's the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. And if we follow Jesus Christ, we probably should follow Jesus Christ. Um, who was not apathetic. In fact, he did the most self-sacrificial thing possible. And what was his motive? Love. We read of that the, the love of God is shown in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I, I think of a passage in 2 Corinthians. It's a really neat section near the end of the chapter. Look at it later. Paul the Apostle is saying, God has reconciled us to himself through what Jesus Christ has done. And he's given us those who have been reconciled with God, made right with God, the same ministry of reconciliation. So now we have this role of calling people back into relationship with God. But it's not only with our mouths, our lips, it's also with our lives. Because he says to function this way, you're an ambassador of Christ. You're representing the king in a foreign land. And in all of this, he says, what's the motive? says, the love of Christ compels us. That's probably the coolest part about that section in 2 Corinthians. You know, why would we represent God? Why would we be faithful to that king? Why would we uh, be uh, ambassadors of Christ and, and call people to be reconciled with God? Because of the love of Christ. So self-absorption, apathy, doesn't, it doesn't compute for a follower of Christ. Now, What's the alternative to being self-conscious, self-righteous, and, and self-absorbed? Well, the alternative is selflessness. 
And of all the self-hyphenated words these days, the only one that should characterize a Christian is selflessness. We're the people who need to live out that thought, it's not about me. And when we're selfless, what happens? We, we end up uh, effectively communicating the good news. When we're authentic, when we're authentic, when we view people as, as needing God. Now, the reason I use the word authentic here is that people can tell when you're real. And people can tell when you're faking it. If you're full, it shows. If you're empty, people can see right through you. We're going to be effective ambassadors for Christ. We're going to be credible when we communicate Christ, when we live authentic lives, when we're, when we're real, when we're living lives that are, that are beautiful to those who have not yet experienced what God has done. So I've got three questions to ask you as we uh, move toward the conclusion of this message. The first one has to do with whether or not you have actually experienced what God has done for you. I believe this, this, account, this account in 2 Kings really does depict spiritual reality and that we are helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. So i got to ask you, have you experienced what God has done for you? And if not, it's a time for discovery. And you have spiritual leaders in your church who today in the lobby would be available for you to say, hey, can I hear more about what it means to be filled, to experience what God has done? I, I don't, I don't want to be on my own. I don't want to have this agony and emptiness in my heart. You also can call the church office during the week and make an appointment. It can be a time of discovery for you. I've got another question. We'll camp out in this one a little longer. Are you characterized more by chronic complaining or conspicuous contentment? If you have, like those lepers, stumbled upon what God has done, you've experienced what he, what he offers, and you know that good news, that we don't have to die spiritually, but we can live, then what do you look like when you head back into town? When you go to your family reunion, when you go to your place of work, in your own neighborhood, you know, if we ask people around town today, what are Christians known for in, in our current culture? I'm afraid we might hear from some, Christians are chronic complainers. Christians are those folks that are always whining that things aren't as they should be. Is that what a Christian is? I, I hope that's not the case. But if that's 10% true, that's 10% we need to take 100% responsibility for, Right? I mean, picture, picture the lepers walking back into town, having just stuffed their faces. They're, they are satiated. They are satisfied. They are full. And yet as they walk back in again, they kind of try to kind of mope along. And oh, man, and they decry what a terrible world this is. And things are so terrible. And they're just like everybody else. You know, when a Christian acts just like everybody else, guess how much impact they have on everybody else? Zero. Jesus said, you're the light. Jesus said, you're salt of the earth. And for those to be effective, they must penetrate and permeate and be different. The distinction is what matters, right? So let's explore, rather than being a chronic complainer, what does it mean to be conspicuously content? 
I would think the lepers go back in with a little bit of tahini on their mustache, a little bit of tabbouleh on their beard, the smell of, you know, a grilled lamb with, with all these cool herbs on their breath. You know, you may not think garlic on your breath is a good thing, but if you've been starving and these guys come in looking all full and with their little, you know, goodie bag, you know, of, of leftover falafel balls, I mean, that's pretty convincing, isn't it? Obviously, they've experienced something that's out of this world. And what I'd like us to be is known for being conspicuously content, being people who folks can tell that God has filled you, that you are satisfied. People are looking for satisfaction in the stupidest places these days. They go down dead-end roads, and they, they, they go nowhere. But as Christians, we, are, we literally have the blessing of experiencing life as it was meant to be lived, as we, we get to experience what our Creator designed us to enjoy. And that, in my mind, should be very clear to others. Again, if you're empty, people see through you. If you're full, you will stick out. Now, I had met Sean some years ago, but we reconnected because I've been doing some work for the county promoting parent education. And he asked me, when I came and spoke, to do a little announcement, essentially, trying to recruit some of you to be trained as parent educators. And rather than making it as an announcement, actually it fits in really well in this sermon right here. And, and here's why. There's an opportunity that you can get involved in what Mid-Valley Parenting is doing around Polk County and, and, con and connect with people who have not yet experienced what God has done and as you live your life before them in one of these parenting classes, you know, just, just leading them through the curriculum, you will get comments like the comments that I've gotten when I did the same. See, kind of how I got here is that I had pastored for many years, as Sean said in the video, and then I retired to build a house, and a very, very good and very, very bad thing happened. I finished the house. It's good because we get to live in it, but it's bad because, well, what now? I didn't have to wonder what now very long because a member from my old church is over all those social services in Polk County, and he began asking me, hey, do you want to do this? I said, yes. Want to do this? Yes. He says, I know, I know it's a trend. You tend to say yes. I go, well, I've already prayed about it, so if you ask me, I'm going to say yes. So I've gotten myself into all these training and teaching opportunities, but the simplest one, the first one, was that I facilitate parenting classes. Now, there are 13 different curricula, that are evidence-based, government-funded, or grant-funded, and people from your community are going to sign up for these classes. Now, where should they be held? Well, Sean thinks, why not in this church? Somebody from, from outside that would never otherwise come in here comes in, attends an eight-week series on parenting. They see all your signage, makes it clear what you guys are about. They have a first positive experience in your building. Is it evangelism? Well, it's pre-evangelism. Now, who should be leading these classes? Well, why not members of this church? Why not you? Literally, why not you? I mean, he asked me to actually recruit. If you're interested in being trained as a parent educator, it's very, very simple. Most people worry it will be too much too soon. Actually, the opposite is the case. It's, it's not much and it's not soon. If you want to be trained, you pick which curriculum. You go, I'd like to do the one on teens. I'd like to do the one with toddlers. I'd like to do the one for men. You get trained in that, which takes some time, not a lot of time, it's online. 
And then a class may not be formed until, who knows, next September. So to get on board now with it, it's not going to be too much too soon. The average parent educator for Mid-Valley Parenting only leads one or two series a year. I, I've, been, I've been specializing in the one called Nurturing Fathers. I teach it two, maybe three times a year. Sometimes online, sometimes in person. I meet with folks who I would not otherwise meet. And I don't wear my Christianity right up front. I don't say, my name is Dr. Grine. I'm a retired pastor. I sell Amway and life insurance. So, you know, it'll push them away. See what I'm saying? I don't sell Amway and life insurance. But what I'm saying is that if I come on, you know, pushy at the get-go, no relationships develop. But instead, I just live my life with them. And, you know, it's the funniest thing. Normal Christian character these days is not normal. It blows people away. You know, if you exhibit what the Bible says is produced in your life when you trust in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If, if that's what you're like, and the Bible says those are the things that become natural, but they're supernatural from the perspective of the person who doesn't know what that's, that that's available. You know, I, I, I usually like to teach on Thursdays, and you have a choice. You just say what days are available. So I teach this Nurturing Fathers on Thursdays, and Friday morning, I might be praying about these guys, and it'll come to me that I want to thank one of them. So I just text them, you know, maybe even voice text. It takes me 30 seconds to say, hey, Bill, this is Larry. Um, yeah, I just want to let you know how much I appreciated you being open last night. Your example of vulnerability meant a lot to the other guys. I kind of see you as a co-leader, and hey, it's really happy you're in the class. I send it off. And he, and he returns the text saying, I will never delete this text. I have never had a, a man I respect give me such affirmation. You think, wow, is Christianity that revolutionary? And the answer is, it is. You can wear it well. These normal Christian qualities of simply caring for people are so attractive to people who have not yet experienced. In this world of, of emptiness and futility, Man, you get, you get in one of these classes and some really cool things can happen. The curriculum is not biblical, but it's not unbiblical. I mean, there's not chapters and references there, but these principles are good principles. The difference between a good thing and a God thing is the motive of the person doing it. If you're doing it as unto the Lord, like we read in Colossians 3.23, then it becomes an incredible ministry. So if you want to learn more, you can hit me afterwards. But the point is that if we're whiners, we don't impress anybody with the reality of what God has done. But if our lives are conspicuously full, there's a freshness that blows people's minds. You know, I don't want to say the obvious. I mean, it needs to be said. Christianity works. And in a world where nothing else is working, you will make a huge impression on people's lives. Okay, let's go on. I had one more question to ask you. And the question is, are you willing to share the good news? It's time to no longer be afraid or arrogant or apathetic, but to authentically show and tell people what God has done. Somebody went out of their comfort zone to tell you about God. Think about it. How'd you first hear about what has God has done for you? Someone was willing to share the good news. We can do the very same thing for others.